Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Uh, happy Christmas if you're listening to this when it came uh, when it came out, when it comes out. Anyway, if you are listening to this uh, 24th or 25th of December and you are a person who celebrates Christmas, happy Christmas to you. Why did I put out a Christmas present philosophy podcast? Well, the truth is a lot of people don't celebrate Christmas at this time of the year and I thought it might be fun for you guys to have a nice friendly conversation in your ears while other people are off doing Christmassy shit. Um, A lot of you travel uh, to go and see family at Christmas and I thought it might be nice to have something for the drive. So... Today's episode is with a guest called Will Patterson. You may not recognize the name, Will Patterson. Uh, He wrote a book called Mr. Ordinary Goes to Jail. One man's experience of what really happens on the inside. Mr. Ordinary Goes to Jail. I get the title of the book wrong about three times in this interview, to be honest, uh, which is weird because I had read it freshly again the uh, night before Will and I talked. But uh, anyway, Mr. Ordinary Goes to Prison and Ordinary Man Goes to Jail. I gave it a whole bunch of different goes, but it is called Mr. Ordinary Goes to Jail. It's a fascinating tale and I hope you enjoy listening to it. If you like this podcast, uh, you can support it by going patreon.com slash willosophy, W-I-L-O-S-O-P-H-Y. And you can contribute as little as a dollar a month uh, to make sure that everybody who helps me put this podcast together uh, all get paid. This is a non-profit uh, organization uh, insofar as I'm concerned, but I do like to make sure that everybody else who contributes gets paid in the proper way. So you can help me do that at patreon.com slash philosophy, or the other way you can help me is uh, come and uh, see one of my stand-up shows. In 2020, I'm touring all over Australia with three different shows in different places. So uh, check out comedy.com.au for all the details. I'll just mention the early ones. Uh, basically, Wyong, your first uh, first cab off the rank early in January doing my Will Eagle show. Then two weeks at the Sydney Comedy Store doing my improvised show, What You Talking About Will. They are uh, nearly half sold out already, so get in quick if you want to come and see What You Talking About Will. And then uh, after that, Adelaide Fringe with Will Informed, Melbourne International Comedy Festival with the Will Eagle and What You Talking About Will, um, and a whole bunch of other places. Oh, Brunswick Heads, Brunswick Heads in... Uh, February, uh, that is close to selling out some of those shows as well. So if you're in Brunswick Heads or the Brunswick Heads area, uh, I'll be at the Brunswick Picture House. Anyway, go and check out all the details at comedy.com.au. Perth, Brisbane, a whole bunch of other places I'm coming your way. So uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, I really do hope you enjoyed this episode. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the podcast starts. I ask my guests who they are. So guest, who are you? Well, I'm a dad. I'm almost a husband. I'm a Star Wars fan. I'm a former prisoner and an author and my name is Will Patterson. Now, Will, it's nice to have another Will on. That'll be easy for me to remember, if nothing else. Should be. Yeah. It's like, you know, in the in the moments, if I have any blank time, I'll just be like, what's your name? Yeah. <laughs> just, just say your name. Yeah. That'll be fine. Now, uh, there's a lot of things there. Can we go through them one by one? Yes. So what's on, what did you put first on your list there? I'm a dad. You're a dad. Now, so that's pretty important to you, obviously, and, and part of the reason I think... I imagine at least why, you know, some of the other things we're going to talk about today, what, what's at the forefront of how you talk about those things and, in fact, why you're talking about them is, you know, probably to do with the fact that you are a dad. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I talk about, like, my past and my recent history, which, like you say, we'll get into, um, 
in part to use it as a lesson. I figure if my life can be nothing else, it can be used as a bad example for others of things not to do. Um, but also, um, it was really important for me, um, during some difficult times that I've had to stay, um, honest with my son. Um, I've got one son and, um, for him to understand that the actions that I'd taken had consequences and that that's how life works. That if you choose a course of action, you have to live with the consequences. Of okay. So that's a, a point that we'll put a pin in and then we'll revisit when we actually get to the yeah, for sure. the story. But yeah. I think that's a nice framework to look at it through. Yep. You absolutely. know, because I think, you know, when this story is told and I, I've, I've read your book mm-hmm. and I know I have a little insight into the story myself and we might get to that as well. But, yeah. uh, the thing that you come back to the whole time is, of course, we all make mistakes and we've all destroyed our lives in various ways. But when there's a kid in the picture, it becomes a whole different story. Absolutely. So yeah. I think it's an incredibly important element of the story that we'll revisit. So you said dad first. What did yeah. you put second? I put almost a husband second. Now, this is exciting because like, <laughs> you know, the book came out a while ago now. Yeah. And I actually revisited it last night. I okay. read it when you first sent it to me, but I thought, you know, we were going to chat today. I'm going to, have you know, look, yeah. have another look and just sort of remind myself of anything in particular. And, uh, one of the things, of course, that is left hanging is that this, you know, this romance that you're talking about, I assume it's the same one. It is the same <laughs> one. Yeah, good one. <laughs> I probably yeah. should ask that question yeah, first. It is the same one. Yeah. But it is, it is budding at the end of, of, of the, the book. book. Yeah. So I'm very pleased to, to hear um, that, uh, you know, that is still going strong. So yeah, it's, it's uh, going well, great. can I, you tell me a little bit about where that's at? Yeah, absolutely. And I said, I said it second because I, I struggled to work out how to describe it. I don't like the word fiance. Mm-hmm. I, it, it doesn't sort of entail at all. I don't like the word partner because we're going to get married. So almost a husband was the closest thing I could come to with it. But, um, she is an, an astonishing human being. She's, she's made my life better in so many ways that I wasn't expecting. Um, she was, um, not something I was expecting in my life and has been a massive gift and, and turns out it's probably the love of my life. Um, we're, and we're opposite in very many ways. And, and it, it means that we've sort of all our little crags and crannies fit together beautifully. I like this. I like this way of starting because it, it, it frames the story that we're going to tell today, yep. I think in the right way, yep. which is about, we're going to tell a big story mm-hmm. and about some big themes, yep. but, uh, I, you know, at the end of the day, what it comes back to is, you know, you and your life you know, the people that were hurt along the way and then how you rebuild that life. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, to see that that life is being rebuilt and it's being rebuilt in such a positive way feels to me like a lovely place for this conversation to start. Yeah. Um, it's like, spoiler alert, it works out okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like reading the Bible. Yeah. I don't want to spoil the end for Hang you. On, is he going to get out of prison or not? Yeah, I don't, that's it. I don't that's know. It. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's go to the third on the list. Oh, Star Wars fan. So the one on the list. Yeah. So Star Wars fan, this is a, um, so you must be excited because we're recording this, uh, it's, uh, early in December, 2019, yep. but that means that the Star Wars, uh, the final chapter in the Star Wars films comes out in yep. the next couple of weeks. Do you have tickets already? Do you have plans already I've, around I've it? I've had tickets already and I haven't watched any trailer. I watched the very first um, teaser trailer that was about 20 seconds long. And then I've taken all the Star Wars stuff off of my Instagram <laughs> Uh, and I'm not looking at any of it until after I've seen the movie because I, I don't want it ruined. And and I know the way they cut trailers these days that they're going to ruin it. <laughs> are you um, are you going on the first night or do you, will you have to avoid spoilers? I'm going to have to avoid spoilers for a couple of days, yeah. I'm going on Boxing Day. So my, my um, 
my girl works in retail, so she'll be working Boxing Day and my son and I are going on Boxing Day to see it. So the, our house will go dark. <laughs> <laughs> I'll unplug the telly. <laughs> then, uh, yeah. All right. So um, let's let's go to the next on the So list. the next one's a former prisoner. Yes. Now all we right. get real. So we've, we've given a little sense of, you know, where you're at in your life. Yep. Looking forward to the Star Wars movie coming out, looking forward to you know, getting married to the love of your life. You know, mm-hmm. you clearly have a relationship with your son. You know, you're mm-hmm. going to see Star Wars together on Boxing Day. Good. All right. That's great. Yep. That gives us a nice sense of who you are and where you're at now. Yep. Because what we're about to do is go back over some bad shit. Yeah, you know, yeah. Some, some yeah. bad times in your life. So before we get into it, um, I, I ask everyone on this podcast if they have a philosophy. I reckon mm-hmm. it's probably pretty important in this one to ask you what yours is up the top and then we can view the rest of the conversation through that prism. Definitely, because it's a philosophy that I learned. I've actually got a couple. We'll see how many we get to. But the main one is one that I learned during this journey, which is do your own time. Is my philosophy. Never had someone say, do the, do your own time there you go. on the podcast before. So this is the first. There's a new one. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I've dipped my toe into the water with some white collar criminals. Yep. Like, you know, I don't know. Yep. You never know. I might have some pretty hardcore biker dudes on this podcast next year. Yeah, good. Yeah. And, and you know, dragged off a plane. So Oh, exactly. You know, yeah, we're brothers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did some pretty hard time. I yeah. did a couple of hours in the holding cell at the Wagga Wagga Police Station. Yeah, aren't those delightful places? Did my own time, oh, mate. Oh, my God. <laughs> Time. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Let's, uh, let's go back to the start of this story. Where, where do we start? Where's a good place for us to start telling So this? I think probably, um, 2013, um, I was working for a pretty large insurance company. Um, uh, and my boss came to me one day and said, Hey, we just need you to help us out with something downstairs. Um, we walked, I walked into a room with some very serious looking, um, forensic accountants in there. Um, and I, my, the first thought that went through my head was, oh my God, this is it. Um, because what had been going on is that I had been, um, stealing money from the company for a period of about 18 months. Um, and they'd caught me. So, yeah. Did you, did you know this day was coming? Yeah, I knew this day was coming. Absolutely. I did. I think I put it out of my head. Um, it was, it, it was a, uh, fast and steep slope from, doing it one time and thinking, I can't ever do that again to 18 months later where, um, I had broken my moral compass and I was adrift in just an absolute sea of shame, but used to the money and feeling greedy. And, you know, I was, I was completely lost. I was, I was so lost that I was blaming the company thinking if they really wanted to catch me, they could. So it's their fault. So it's okay for me to keep doing it. Um, and I didn't know how to stop, you know, at first, all I wanted to do was stop. And then the second time happened and that was really the start of when I became, you know, a thief. Um, and, um, by the time they brought me into that room, I didn't know how to stop. I was desperate to stop, but I didn't know how to stop. Um, and so the, the forensic accountant said to me, we need to talk to you about some transactions that we've got some anomalies with. And my first sentence was, I'm going to save you all some time because I did it. Whatever you think I did, I did it. And they were all a bit shocked, to be honest, that I would just admit to it straight away. But in my head, I was like, thank goodness this can stop. This is the only way out now. This can stop. Uh, so I'm very interested in the mindset because one of the things, because I, you know, rereading the book last night, one of the things I was struck by that perhaps, you know, uh, I was caught up in the story a bit more the first time and, and you know, 
didn't think about as much when I was reading it, but I thought about a lot more last night was how relatable this story is because we've, we might not have all stolen from our company in the way that you're talking about and that we'll find out about, but there's probably very few of us who haven't at some stage stolen from the company. Yeah. Like, with, you yeah. know, like, yeah. you know, a notebook that makes its way home that yeah. should still be in the Cheeky office. Or, charge or... Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, very much. When I was in the Canberra press gallery, yeah. <laughs> um, I was in charge of the sort of the office cab charges. Yeah, that was right. one of my responsibilities. And, you know, there would have been a few nights after a late night drinking after uni that I might've, you know, yeah. Yeah, realised there was one of those company cab charges in my wallet and taken it home instead, which is, you know, is stealing from the company. It is, yeah, that's right. And, I mean, we're talking about a different degree here, but we're talking about the the same thing. But not just that, there are so many of us in our lives who have got into something, found a quick solution for something, knowing it's the wrong thing. Yes. But then being, being able in our mind to build up justifications for why, for why, for why it's not as bad. So was yep. that what you were doing originally? Was that where your mindset was? The, the very first time was we were in dire financial stress. So we had pressure of a mortgage. We had pressure of credit cards. We had, we were living beyond our means. Um, we, for a period of time there, we weren't keeping up with the Joneses. We were the Joneses that everyone else was keeping up with. And I was the only person that knew it was going to come to a, a crashing halt. Um, and so um, an opportunity presented itself. And, and, you know, there, there is an interesting theory called, um, Felsen's triangle of, of criminology that says there has to be an opportunity. There has to be a lack of supervision and there has to be a perpetrator. And if those three things don't come together exactly, then crime doesn't happen. And, and that happened. There was an opportunity. I was in a position, you know, it's a different position to being in charge of the cab charges, but I was in a position where, um, I was responsible for cancelling checks that were returned to the company. And one came back to the office and rather than cancel it, I cashed it. And then I went home that night and um, was furious with myself. Now, explain explain to people, how can you cash a check that uh, comes back to the company? So um, if if we send a a check out to someone whose car we've crashed into, because it was a car insurance company, uh, and they don't live at that house anymore, the the check comes back and I'd cancel it. The check came back in my name on my desk. I'm stressed out about money. How am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to pay to, to the next mortgage? Check lands on my desk for just under $5,000, Will Patterson. I'm like, and the, at first I thought, what's this? Like, we don't get Christmas bonus. This is strange. And so I looked up the name and sure enough, there was a guy who we had sent a check out to who didn't live there anymore. And instead of um, just cancelling it, I put it in my desk drawer. Um, and I felt a lot like... Um, uh, it, it was yelling at me for three, four days before I did anything with it. Like I'd walk away from my desk and go, oh no, there's, someone's going to go past my desk. Someone's going to see it in there. They're going to go, oh, that's obviously a mistake. We'll cancel that for him. You know, we'll be helpful. And I'd go home at night and I'd sweat and I'd, I'd think about it. And then I think the third day I decided I was going to put it in the bank. Cause you know, this is a moment. Like, I mean, it is, as you said, it's a amazing coincidence yes. at the very least. Yeah. And so suddenly there is that moment where you're going, well, this isn't just me going through the files and, you know, trying to, this is a return check yeah. from an insurance company. Yeah. You know, I can, I mean, I can, I can start making the argument in my mind. Victimless crime. You know, yeah. you just start to go, well, they're a big insurance company. Yep. Insurance companies are making people's lives hard all the time. They yep. won't miss this amount of money. It was meant to go out to this person. It's been returned. They're not there anymore. And my name 
is on the chair. That's right. And also I'm angry with the company in this moment. Mm. We, we've been doing a huge amount of work at this time with the company, um, offshoring a huge part of our business and, um, they, they advertise it as the best and the brightest are going to get a chance to go to India and train the people in the call center. And I got left behind mm. and I'd put 13 years in at the company. I thought I was one of the best and the brightest and I was angry and I was jealous and I wanted to go. And so I was mad at them and say, oh, well, this isn't more than what maybe I deserve as compensation for not going, you know, all these, and it's all BS. Like it's, it's, but, but all of that was going on in my head. And that's why I let the check clear. Like the next morning I was going to work determined that I needed to fix this. I didn't know how, I think I would have had to go to my boss and say, I've made a terrible mistake. I've done this. We can undo it. I know you might, you know, but mm. we can undo this. And I didn't because no one said anything the next morning at work. No one had noticed. And so I let it, I let it clear and see if anybody noticed and nobody noticed. And I, you know, the mortgage got paid that month. Um, and then. So in that moment now, the check clears. What, what do you feel right then? Do you feel relief? Do you feel, oh shit, this is now, I can't go back from this? Like regardless of what happens now, like, you know, yeah. chances are even if I went to my boss now, I'd probably get fired for this. Yeah. You know, like the, the deed is done. Correct. Like I could probably, you could probably just get fired, you know. Yeah, and, and that's it. And that would yeah. be it. But, yeah. but you know, you're, you're in financial trouble already. Yep. Yeah you're now on the hook, you know, yep. like, do you feel that straight away? Do you feel a relief because, you know, suddenly you have this solution to some of your financial pressure. Is there any sort of thrill from the fact that you've got away with it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> all, all of that. Yeah. Um, I, um, I felt relieved that we didn't, we hadn't, we'd survived another month. Um, I, um, I was looking over my shoulder waiting for someone to tap me on the shoulder. I was going through scenarios in my head where maybe I couldn't get, get away with not getting fired. Maybe you could put me back into the call center and I could build up trust again and I could pay it back. And, um, and there was a bit of, oh, well, no one's noticed. Like, you know, um, there was a little bit of that. Um, the, but there was a huge, just boiling amount of emotions. And then, and, and it, I, I, I probably sat in it for two, maybe three weeks. And then I went, the next mortgage payment's coming and we're short again. And if I drew a check to that guy this time, I know it'd come back to me. And I know that then I could, and just one more time, that's it. And then I'm clear, then we'll be okay. We'll be back on our feet just one more time. And, I, and so the second time I did it on purpose, I drew the check. I did everything knowing it was the wrong thing to do and cashed it. And the same thing happened, which was nothing. Um, and then... I lose track of it now, looking back of it and thinking of it now from then. So from two checks, which totaled probably 10 grand, then the day I walked into the office, it was a little bit under $300,000 over 18 months. 18 months is a long time to be living with that knowledge. Yeah. Um, what was your, just so people understand, what was your mental state generally anyway around that time period in your life? Yeah. So after, um, after my son was born, so he was seven by this time, um, I started to get terrible anxiety, really bad, bad depression. I was going to be a terrible dad. I, I, I've always had this thing in my life where, 
Um, do you remember that Warner Brothers cartoon where it was the big dog and the little dog mm-hmm. and the little dog would just run around yapping after the pig? I have always felt like that little dog that I, I run around yapping around the feet of the people that I admire, um, hoping that I can be part of the gang and hoping somebody will notice me and, and recognize me as the person that I have, am capable of being. Right. And so when my son was born, I had that feeling too. I'm not, I don't deserve to be part of this gang. Why have I got something so incredible in my life? I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to hurt him by accident. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to do the wrong thing. I'm going to bring him up to be a terrible human being. Um, and I went to my doctor for something else, a flu shot or something. And he said, so how are you going? I'm like, okay. And he's like, good. Okay. That's good. So how are you going? And he asked me oh, three times and then it all came out. I think I'm a bad father already. The baby's only six months old, but I'm a terrible father and I, I don't sleep at night and I go in to him three or four times a night to check that he's breathing. And the only smart thing I did with that was I got myself a mirror and I used to go into the baby's room and put the mirror under his face so I could see his breath on the side. Cause you don't wake up a sleeping baby. I at least knew that. <laughs> and, um, and, and it was terrible. Um, and my doctor, um, and I w- went through a long process of um, recognizing some anxiety issues that I had. Um, and after a bit of trial and error, he put me on a balance of medication that is, that I take every day to quell the anxiety and to, to quell that voice in my head that says, you're just a little dog yapping around everybody else and nobody actually cares about what you've got to say. My subconscious doesn't like me very much. Um, that's how my doctor put it. He said, you know, we need to knock your subconscious out at night because it doesn't like you. It tells you lies and it tells you awful things about yourself and you believe them. So we need to sort that out. So I already had that imbalance. Um, and then throwing, you know, this um, 18 months of doing the wrong thing into the mix. Um, it's fair to say that my anxiety overcame the drugs. Um, and I was really, I would have, I, I must have been a terrible human being to be around. You know, I, I could fake it at work to a certain extent. There were days at work where I'd find a meeting room that I could lock the door and I'd lock the door and just curl up on the floor because, um, life was too much for me. The noise and the people and the making the decisions and the pretending to be okay. And the, um, the, the, I, I could see judgment in everybody's faces, even though nobody sort of knew I could see it. But if you're, if your brain's keeping you up all night, telling you you're a terrible person as well. Yeah. And then you've done something that you think proves your brain's point. Yes. You know? Yes. <laughs> then that, then suddenly you can't help but believe that. Yes. Correct. Yeah. And you know, like, I mean, also you have done something wrong. You're doing yeah. the wrong thing, but, but you know, it feeds into the story that your brain has been it absolutely telling does. you. Yeah. For my most, for, for as long as I can remember that my brain's been mm. telling me. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's, yeah. it's go, here you go. You yep. are the, yeah, look, you look. are the cheat and the liar that I've always said that you were. Look, look yep. at your behavior. Look at the way that you're living your life. Yeah, that's right. And if I'd go, oh, you're right. They are all judging me. Then the voice in my head goes, no, they're not. You are, you are so irrelevant that people don't even talk about you behind your back. That's how irrelevant you are to everyone. When you leave the room, it's like you were never there. So whether it's, okay, I agree with you, uh, you know, I'm a terrible person. And then the voice will go, no, 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 no. That's not what I said. I said, you were a worthless person, or I said, you were an irrelevant person. It's a, it's an insidious thing. Um, Do you think that the spending, uh, you know, the overspending was related to the sense of buying worth? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the, the, the thing I lost track of was that my, 
my ex-wife now, um, who I was married to when all of this happened, what she wanted was me to be there. She wanted the, the, the Aussie man's dream. I'm here, aren't I? That's what she wanted. She wanted my presence and my time and my quality. She didn't actually need me to go out and buy ridiculous things and, and, you know, have a house full of the best brand stuff. And she didn't actually know she liked it. There's no doubt about it, that she's, she's a, a person who likes to have nice things, but she would have, we would have survived renting a house, having lost our house because we couldn't pay the mortgage if I was just there. And for that period of time that I was, I was doing everything wrong to try and make myself the provider, um, that I, I could have saved myself all that grief by just being there. I think that's a incredibly relatable story. I think there are so many people who, you know, feel, you know, work more and more, spend more and more time away from home to buy their family and their partners and whatever mm -hmm. these amazing things that are really just making up for the fact that they're away all the time and have to work all the time. Yeah, that's you know? right. Yeah. And, and I think it's a con that society in general, like, mm. you know, this is the lie that society tells us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, capitalism tells us that consumerism tells us that it is buy more, you know, work more, you yeah. know, contribute to this, you know, system more. Yeah, this will make you happy. Oh, you've got that. Actually, we were wrong. This yeah. will make you happy. You need a bigger version or a shinier yeah. version or a smaller version. Now we're yeah. into the smaller version. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, you got the bigger version, but now the trendy one's the smaller version. Right. Oh, you've got an iPhone. We've got this yeah. new thing called an eye camera. It just takes photos. It's perfect. Mm. Everyone needs an eye camera. <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So in that time, I'm very interested in... Um, you know, did your relationship with stealing change? Because the first time it's a crime of opportunity, yes. you know, it doesn't happen if the, you haven't gone out of your way to make this crime happen. No. The crime has presented itself in front of your face and you have taken the crime of opportunity. Yep. The second time you have created the situation. Yeah. And then was it a, 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 was it a consistent, like, you know, your embezzlement from the company, was it consistent? Was it the sort of thing where once a month you would take $5,000 or did it increase at some stage or did you have a plan to keep it under the radar? Like, was there a formula to what you were doing? There wasn't. Uh, what I remember is it would just come into my head. So we'd get to the time of the month where we needed to make sure all the bills were, were done and I'd go, you know, you've got an option, mate. Mm. You've got an option. Because after you do it a couple of times, you're – your moral compass has now included that in that's okay, you know? So, so, so then when I was a little bit short, I'd go, oh, that's right. I've got an option. I'd, I'll just do, you know, I only need 3,200 this month. That's fine. And, oh, okay. Oh, I've got an option. I, you know, I need 7,000 this month, but that's okay. And, and so that's how it happened. And, and then it, you become so used to having it that it's almost like it's part of your income. That, that you know that you can get it, you know that it's easy, no one's, no one's noticed yet, so then probably not going to. Um, and what's the worst that could happen? Well, the worst that could happen is my wife also worked at the company too, so I used her, um, I used her log-on details to steal some of the money. I used some of my staff who's working for me's log-on details to steal some of the money to make it look a little bit less like. And so I know, I know mostly from um, her that, all of those people got put through the ring in the same way I did because the company had to find out if they were involved. And so I hurt a lot more people. So, um, so but, suddenly it goes from being, you know, up to a point, mm -hmm. what you could consider 
or at least justify in your mind as being a victimless crime. Yeah. You're stealing from a big company. Yeah. You know, the big companies steal from us consistently. I mean, I again, yeah. I, I could make these arguments. <laughs> yeah, like, they steal from I can us. understand yeah, how you it would be so easy. You yeah. know, after the global financial crisis, not one banker went to fucking jail. Yeah, that's The right. idea that you're going to steal from some big, you know, yeah. like, you know, on a different podcast, if we weren't talking about this today, and this is not to justify it, I just can understand how it would be easy to be able to make those justifications in your head of going, fuck yeah. that, I'm Robin Hood. Yeah, exactly. You know I mean? Like, yeah, you, exactly. Know? like yeah. you know, th- this company's not missing it. I'm not hurting anybody else along this way. You know, nobody's finding out about it. This, I can understand how you could get used to, you know, making the justification for that. But yeah. you're right. The minute that you use other people's logins, the minute that you involve other people, now, you probably didn't think at the time when I get caught, no. they're all going to get interrogated in the same way. Not at but all. But the fact that they had to go through that for something that had nothing to do with them at all mm-hmm. is where it gets into that realm of you're suddenly hurting a lot of other people. Correct. And and to use, I know, I love how Australian politics is down to three-word slogans now. So at some point it went from need to greed. There's my three-word slogan, need to greed. That's yep. what happened. And And in fact, my solicitor said that to me. The first time I met him, he said, it's a real shame, mate, that you don't take drugs or you're not into, mm. you're not a sex addict or you're not gambler because this is just going to look like greed. Yeah. I'm like, mm, that's probably cause because that's it, what was. it was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just got to the point where you're like, I'd, I'd rather have an extra $7,000 a month. Than not. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's the 18 months leading up to it. Yep. How... How big was the sense of the looming fear of being found out? Like, how did you reconcile that from day to day? How did you get on with your life? Or were you at the point where you were, like, how did the idea that you're going, I know that at some stage I probably am going to get found out, but at the same time, I've been getting away with this for Hmm. 18 months, so maybe I'm not going to get found out. I think it was just, a, it, it became a bit of a concept thought, you know. Yeah, I know it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen at some stage. Someone's going to stop me. Um, I was more focused on making sure nobody knew, uh, yeah, like, um, my, my closest friend and, and best ally in the whole thing. If, if I had said to him six months in, Hey mate, let's have a beer. I need to talk about something. He would have made me stop and it would have been less painful. Um, but I was so focused on making sure that people didn't know. I mean, like I was, I was going to see a um, psychologist once a fortnight for my anxiety. She knew nothing about it. You know, and a psychologist can only be as good as what you tell them. So when I went to her after it had all come out and said to her, Hey, this has been going on. She was like, Oh, that's it. Good. Now I can do my job. Um, so I was so focused on just making sure no one knew that, that the concept of one day, everyone's going to know just, um, sort of went to the back of my mind a bit. It wasn't the bit I, I felt, cause if I focused on that, I couldn't operate as a normal human. No, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the, the things that we will even keep from our therapists mm-hmm. are the things that we probably should be talking to our therapists about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if, there's, if there's a lie that you have to keep up in front of them from you know week to week, from visit to visit, then yes, it's almost impossible for them to do their job if you're not actually telling them what the major factor yeah, in what they're right. trying to do is. Yeah. But I, I can understand that. You reframe your life mm-hmm. in a way that you're like, if I don't even talk to my therapist about this, then it, it, do, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Only I, I know about this it. and I don't have to face it. Yep. And I can sort of put it away in this corner and get on with the rest of my life. Yep, this exactly is just a little right. dirty secret that only I know. And every single person listening to this has some version of that. 
Yeah. It might not be this version of that, but it might be the affair they had or the, you know, the time they, you know, cheated their way to this or yeah. you know, took somebody else's this or. Or you've got a bank account that you don't tell your partner about or whatever. Like, whatever version of it it is. Yeah. I think that's a relatable story. That bit of your world that you keep to yourself and then you kind of try to go, well, this is just me. Yeah. If other people knew this about me, other people would not like me. Yes, correct. And therefore I'm never going to tell anybody about this. That's right. Yeah. But that can be a very heavy secret to be Absolutely. Yeah, carrying around. And the really tricky bit for me to navigate when it, when it happened, when we go, if we go back to that moment where I sat down in the room was my first feeling was relief yeah. and, and everybody else's process had to start with grief and anger yeah. and because they all had grief and anger and I had relief, it made me look like I didn't care at times. Cause I was like, well, for me, it's done. Mm. I'm, I'm at a different part of this journey. Yeah. It's interesting. I, um, recently had that with a work thing where I knew about a change in my work circumstances, you know, before the, you know, the broader, you know, sort of, you know, place that I worked knew about them. And so of course, by the time you tell everybody else, you've processed the feelings that you have about it. And then yep. you're like, oh, of course, everybody has to have those feelings fresh yeah. themselves. And then they have to process yep. that. Yeah. Um, What's it like to, like, did you realize, so you walk into that room, mm-hmm. the, the jig's up, um, you admit straight away that you've done it, you have a sense of relief, but what's it like in that moment where you've been caught for doing something so, you know, $300,000 or about that sort of money, it's a decent, yeah, it's a it's, really yeah, decent amount of money. And, and they've caught you, yep. they've caught you stealing $300,000. Like in that moment, as well as relief, what's, what's the, the other feelings that you're having? Once I'd said that to them, that I'd done it, everything else came crashing in. So how am I going to tell my boy? How am I going to tell my wife? What am I going to tell? What are the people at work going to think of me? Oh my God, I'm probably going to go to prison. What they're going to make me pay it back. I'm going to be paying this back for the rest of my life. I. I've ruined my life. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. I've ruined my life. Not that I'm religious, but it's funny, isn't it? When you go, when you're in that, you go, Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, um, how am I going to get home? Cause I had a company car. <laughs> so that was, I know that's, it's crazy, but that was one of the thoughts I was having while they were explaining to me, how are we going to get, how am I going to get home? And then they said to me, you have to ring your wife and tell her, and you have to do it on speakerphone because she worked for them. And in that moment, I was like, how can you be so incredibly cruel as to make me do this phone call? I know why Mm. in, in, on reflection, they needed, they needed to know that. They need to rule her out as a suspect. You've used her login address. She's your wife. Like there's a fair degree from their point of view where they have to rule out the fact that she wasn't in on this whole plan with you. And they wanted to hear her reaction. Yeah. So if she went, oh yeah, Mm. then they'd go, oh, she's, you know, hundred percent she's in on us. Yeah. Yeah. They got us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but she, and obviously she didn't, mm. she was just absolutely shocked. She, she, I, she's like, oh, it's you. Like what I didn't know is they'd interviewed her before they interviewed me. And so she'd already been sent home and she was already in an absolute panic because Will couldn't possibly have done this. They've made a mistake. Not, uh, she, it, it, it didn't cross her mind that I'd done it. it. It crossed her mind that they'd made a mistake. So when she heard me on the phone, she's like, I've just been sent home from work and they are accusing you of the most terrible things. And I, and I had to stop her and say, everything they've told you is true. And then, and I could hear the pain, Like she didn't even, she made a noise. 
you know, and I can still hear that noise if, if I close my eyes, that just that noise of this is my life ripping in half. Um, and, and I'm sure they heard it too. Uh, and then that was a fairly short phone call. Um, and we agreed we'd, we'd, um, meet back up at our house and then I had to almost go straight into practical. How am I going to get home? Because uh, I was a long way from home. I was. How did you get home? I rang my dad and said, I'm, I'm in a drastic situation at work. I don't have a vehicle. I have to get home from here. I need you to come. And he went, okay. And hung up the phone and came. He didn't ask why. He just got in the car and came. And that's my dad in a nutshell. He's, he, he loves very practically and, and will always be there for the people that need him. Um, and so when he got there, he came into the office and said, what's happened? And I told him, um, and he just, I saw his face drop and, and what I saw in his eyes was here we go. Cause when I was a, a young person, when I was in you know, my teens, I'd stolen money from him for alcohol. Um, when I was in my very early twenties, I had a really heavy drug habit and I stole money from him and my mum to feed my drug habit. So I could see it in his eyes. Here we go. How old does this kid have to be before he learns his bloody lesson? And, and that was a very quiet drive home in the car. It was like, how much are we talking about? A lot. When you say a lot, are you going to lose the house? Yep. Are you going to be able to pay for your kid's education? Probably not. Just those, those sort of questions. And then as we pulled up at, at my home, he said to me, you're probably not going to be able to stay here. You'll stay with us. At least, you know, that's a safe place. So even in the midst of it, he was just, he's, that's how, what he does. He loves practically. Like he, I think he vehemently hated everything I'd done, but it didn't change one millimeter how supportive he was going to be of me. Cause he did hate what you, what you've done. I've, yeah. you know, in the book, you talk about it a lot Yeah, and he was, you know, like you, you had really sort of, you know, betrayed yeah, a lot of the ideals that he liked to, you know, yeah, that he believes in, that yeah. he believes in. But there's also, as you said, at the same time, this incredible demonstration of practical love, yeah, which is like, right. I may be incredibly disappointed with what you've done and I'm not going to have a joke with you in the corridor when we walk by each other, but yeah. you are welcome here to stay here. Yeah, that's right. Until you need to. Mm. Yep. And it is, it was probably the first instance of um, kindness that I didn't deserve. And, and that's been a um, theme through this whole journey that as soon as I admitted I'd done the wrong thing, I have received grace and kindness from people when I didn't deserve it over and over again. And that's what people are like. Mm. This is the mistake that we make so often in our society is that, and I try, you know, I say this all the time on this podcast is like, we're all fucked. Yeah. Like everybody out there thinks that everybody else has got their shit together yeah. and everybody in the world doesn't have their shit together. That's right. Like in some way. Yeah, that's right. Every single person has a secret they carry around. Every single person has a fear that they won't say out loud. Everything that single person thinks at some stage in their life, they've done something so terrible that nobody will ever look them in the eye again and love them again and hold them again. But the truth of it is that if you can share those things, if you can get to the point where you share them, yep. human beings have an amazing capacity for kindness and for reaching out and for support. Not yeah. everybody. No. And this isn't a story where you've like no. everybody who used to love you still loves you. No. <laughs> but, but you are amazed by the fact that, you know, when you admit, you know, how you're broken, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, you ask people for help, uh, or don't even ask people for help, allow other people just to help you. Yeah. 
how much of that there is still out there. Yep, absolutely. It's it's um, extremely heartening. Even and and you know, don't, no spoilers, but I did go to jail, and mm. even in jail, there's people who behave like that, and I I really tried to make a conscious choice every day to behave like that now too, to to meet people where they are without judgment. Do you look at um, how your father was a father to you during this time and take lessons for it about how you will father My son, your son? CJ, yeah, I do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, up until this point, I've, I'd, I've spoken to my dad a couple of times about CJ uh, uh, with some things that have happened with him. And the, I remember the first time ringing him going, I'm so upset. He's done this. I don't know what to do. And my dad said, well, I don't know why you're asking me. I never knew what to do with you. <laughs> I'm like, thanks dad. Helpful. Good. But yeah, and in my head, I'm like, yeah, but you did. You, you might not have known what to say, but you always did the right thing. Um, and early on in the piece, I knew the right thing to do with, with CJ was, um, just to be honest. You know, his, his mum didn't want me to be completely honest with him about it, but because I was completely honest with him about it, we've got the relationship we've got now. And, and when, you know, he's, he's had, um, you know, an instance, uh, where he's chosen to lie to me about something that he was doing, he knew that the conversation we were going to have was there's going to be a consequence to this. Because when you do the wrong thing, there's a consequence. We've all learnt that from dad. <laughs> Yeah. So absolutely. And the way, the way my dad fathers is uh, just the way my dad is as a human being is something that I aspire to. Um, he does it all through the, the prism of his religion and it's a really important thing for him. And it was something I was brought up with too. And I, I think it builds part of what my moral compass is. Um, I think I can do it outside of the prism of religion. I don't think religion's the thing that makes you a good person or a bad person. I think it's what you do, how you show people what you are. So, uh, you now have been caught, yep. you're at your dad's house, you're not at home. Mm -hmm. How long does it take between you being caught and, uh, you know, you going to like, well, how, how do you end up from when, when you get caught yep. to walking into a prison? What's that timeline? What happens in between there? Oh, that timeline. So that happened in, um, around about September, 2013. And I went to prison in May, 2014. So there's a bit of time there. Um, I, at first I lived in a bit of a fog. Um, I self-medicated with alcohol and not good alcohol. I don't know why I didn't just like, it was port. Port. Yes. Yeah. Now this was one of the bits in the book where I was like, gee, this is, this is a man who might know how to steal, but he does not know how to, <laughs> to self-medicate. Yeah, right. Port. <laughs> I know of all things. I just, the first night I was- Your Honour, I tender as a, uh, an indicator of his mental state, the fact that he was drinking port. Port. <laughs> and, and a bottle and also a night. Mm. Yeah, it was bad. So, And I, I self-medicated for a while. Um, and my dad's wife, who is this incredibly practical, beautiful Dutch woman, um, very forthright. She was the first person to say to me, I hate what you did but I think in your position, I might've done the same thing. She was the first person who actually admitted that out loud. And I think other people have had that thought and never said it to me. Um, but it put us in a, in a better footing because I, I knew that she was, you know, judging me, but understanding, judging me. She just came to me one day and said, I can count. I was like, okay. And she does that. She comes to you with random stuff. Mm. One, one day she came to me and said, um, we need to talk about your underwear. 
And I was like, oh no, the last thing you want to do is talk to your dad's wife about your undies that she's washing and oh, what have I done? Um, and I'm thinking, I'm sure I'd be very careful. You know, I'm a hygienic bloke, any, any, you know, okay, Omar, what do you want to say? Um, there was five pairs of underpants in the wash and only three pairs of socks. Do you wear a new pair of socks every day? <laughs> like, yes, I do, darling, but I wore thongs two days. So when she comes to me and goes, I can count, I'm like, okay, what's this conversation going to be about? And I said, okay. And she said, and I'm the one that puts out the bin. So you taking your port bottle straight to the bin doesn't work because I see them anyway and I can count. And I know you've got a problem and you know you've got a problem. And so now you know when you're ready to talk about it, you've got someone to talk to about it. And, and I was, uh, I was quite shocked with that approach. Um, I, I was just, oh, okay. It's sort of all, there's a whole lot in that short little explanation, which is, you know, I love you. I will support you. I won't force you to, to do what you can't do yet, but I'm here. It's another astonishing display of kindness. And it made me reevaluate. It made me go, she's right. I'm, I'm just, all I'm doing is trying to numb the pain instead of trying to face the pain or instead of trying to get on with life and be a, a practical member of society. Um, and one of the things I realized was I needed, I needed to work. If this was going to take some time, I needed to do something. Can I, can I ask, and please, if this is too intrusive, um, uh, don't answer or we can cut, cut out the answer. Yep. But I just try to put myself in your, your position mm-hmm. and I've lost my job. I've lied to everybody. Nobody respects or trusts me anymore. Um, you know, I'm drinking excessively. You know, my mental health isn't as good as it should be. Were there times where you thought everybody would be better off without me? No. Okay. Well, that's good. Never. Good. I've never had a moment of self-harm, thought, mm. thoughts of self-harm or suicide, not once. I, I had thoughts of um, everybody would be better off without me, maybe if... Um, my wife and I settle our finances. I can move to Vancouver. Mm. I, I had those sort of thoughts of people would be better off without yeah. me. Go and, and start a new life somewhere. Yep. Um, and, and my thoughts. Don't have to deal with all this. Exactly. And my thoughts got stuck on what do I do with my son? So how do I take him with me so that his mum doesn't chase us? Or, you know, how do I manage it so that we can both still have a part of his life? And that's the why, the reason I didn't do it. I, I got asked that a lot. Um, and I'm sure when we get onto the prison experience, they ask you that a lot. I'm not sure they care about the answer, but they ask you a lot. Um, but no, that was never something that I, I, I had thought of at all. And, and I, I've had friends that have taken that option and I just, I, I see it as such a, I don't know. I think maybe the thing that's broken in me is the thief, not the self-harmer. So you say thief, mm-hmm. you're a thief. And you've been a thief, you know, throughout your life. Yep. And, you know, you stole a whole bunch of money and, you yep. know, you, you like officially, you got an official stamp. Yes, that's right, thief. Official, stamp. official that's thief. Right. Yeah. So what's your relationship with that word and that identity now? Do you like look at yourself, uh, you know, you know, you mentioned in the book a little bit about, yeah, the parallels between, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and, yep. and you know, what you are. Do you see yourself as a person who perhaps is always going to be a thief, but you have to operate in a way that, you know, you don't put yourself in situations yeah. where you will steal anything again. I'm a thief. I'm just not taking anything yeah. for it. Yeah. That's it. 
<laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, yes, absolutely I do. And I, I make a conscious decision at some point in every day to say, I, I choose not to be a thief. Um, that, that I, I absolutely think that's in me. Um, and whether it's as simple as I'm a thief or whether it's as simple as I just have a tendency in me to be willing to take the easy way out without thinking about the consequences. Um, it's simple for me to frame it as thief, um, don't do it. And, and I, I keep it in my mind because I don't ever just want to slip into doing it again. And so if I'm conscious of it all the time and I'm conscious of choosing not to do it all the time, then I know I'm not going to slip into it again. Okay. So, uh, how long does it take in court once you get to that point? Like, is that a quick process? Is that a... There's... There's two dates. You always, you go for two. So my first thing was a hearing. Um, so we didn't have to have a case because I'd admitted guilt. Um, and my solicitor had said to me, so the very first meeting I had with my solicitor, he said, you're going to prison. And I went, "Mm, I don't think that's your job to tell me that. And he said, no, you're going to prison because this is not about you. This is about every other white collar criminal who has ever thought about committing these sorts of crimes being able to see you and go, well, if I do that, I'm going to go to jail. Um, and, and so I sort of had it in my head that I, I was probably going to go to jail. I'd pled guilty. So we didn't have to have a case. So they have a sentencing hearing first and that took 40 minutes. And then you go home and they say, um, you know, you've got to come back on this date. Um, that, which was good because I wasn't ready. When I, when I went to court the first time, there was still a bit of my head that was just denying it all. And, and once I'd done that and it, it, it hit me on that first day that I went to court, this judge is going to send me to jail. It's, it's only a matter of how much time. Um, then I had, I think that was in April and then I went back to the court in the May. Um, and so I had a month ish to get my affairs in order. Um, and <laughs> There's a, there's a page there, at least used to be on a page on Corrections Victoria's website that is a checklist of things you can prepare yourself for if you think you might be going to jail. It should be called, so you're going to jail, dot, dot, dot. But it's not because they don't put any sort of humour into it. <laughs> I can't, I can't. I... But it must be, because this is, I start to think, if I know that I'm going to prison, yep. I suddenly have to prepare myself for what life is going to be like in prison. Yep. And if somebody told me that I was going to prison, I would have no idea... Like, I mean, I've watched movies about yeah, prison yeah, or right. whatever, but I don't actually know what going to prison in an Australian prison is like. Is and, like, And they're not good things to prepare yourself, Will. I'd, I watched Shawshank mm. and I watched Orange is the New Black. Mm. Orange is the New Black's got some accuracies in it because it was written by a woman who went to prison. Mm. Um, but I did that stuff. But this checklist was actually really helpful. It said things like suspend your health insurance, suspend your car registration. You can suspend your car registration if you go to jail. You can tick a box that says involuntary incarceration, which I'm not sure what voluntary incarceration is, but involuntary incarceration, suspend your car insurance, uh, rego, I mean, and your rego starts again when you come back in. Same thing with your health insurance. Um, It says things like pack a bag and take the bag of clothes with you on the day that you go to court. So I I looked it up because the lady at court the first day I went, they have support people there and she said, look this up, you get yourself ready. Um, and I, I do have friends who have lived on the fringes of the law, um, in, in their lives. And I went and had it sat down and had a chat with a friend of mine who had been to jail 
he gave me some good advice. One of the good pieces of advice he said to me is if you can get a job in the kitchen, cause you, you get a chance to have better food cause the food's not good. Um, and I, I just did what I could to get my, my head ready for the fact that there was going to be a period of time that I wasn't at home. And I, and I talked to my son about it as well in that period of time. That was a big conversation. How does that conversation, is it an ongoing conversation? Is it something that you plan for and sit down with him and say, this is what I want to get across? Or is it a matter of like letting him ask questions and you, you know, talking back and forward? How does a conversation like that even happen? So it started uh, the night it started, we were um, at home on our own. In, uh, I was living at my sister's house by, by now and we, we had a time when we were on our own and I had said to him r- right back where his mum and I separated, one day I'll tell you why, but I can't tell you why right now because it hurts too much. And so I was getting dinner ready and he wandered into the kitchen and said, why can't you come home, dad? And I thought, okay, here's, here's that's the conversation. So I just, t- I, I told him the truth. I've, I've, I've stolen some money from work. It's a terrible thing that I've done. I've stolen a lot of money. Um, you know, that mum works at the same company that I work with back when mum, you remember when mum had that two and a half months off work, that was because of me. Um, I'd, and, and I don't know what's going to happen. I have to go to court in May and I don't know what's going to happen. And he said, Oh, that's pretty bad. You should probably go to jail. And so that was the opening. And I said to him, well, it's funny you should say that because that's one of the options. So then we talked through the options of, um, you know, you might go to jail or you might get a corrections order and I might be working you know, in a restricted sort of way, or I might have some restrictions on how I can live. And we got through all of that. And he said, um, but there's no grudges, dad. So when you're done, you can come home, right? Now that's something that we've, uh, we've, we've had since he was really little, no grudges. If if I have to tell you off for something, I tell you off and then there's no grudges. It's done. We, We stop. And so he was sort of invoking that. The problem was I knew by then that my marriage was over and I knew by then that I couldn't come home. Um, so I had to tell him that. So I said, I don't know. I, I, I don't think so. I don't think I'll be able to come home. I don't think life's ever going to be quite the same as it was before. I think we'll have our own place and, and you'll have some time where you can live at dad's at our house and you'll have some time when you can live at mum's house. And, and I could see he was really upset, at, but trying to be a man, uh, not quite nine years old, trying to be a man. And I'd put him in the situation where he had to try and be a man at not quite nine years old. Um, and I could see him trying to hold back tears and then his eyes changed. They sort of lit up a little bit and he said, oh, mum won't let me dad. So if you get your own house, can we have a lizard? (laughs) (laughs) It's a great thing about being nine. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I can see the benefit here. Can we have a lizard? (laughs) Yeah. Um, it's a much more modern world in regard to separated families Mm -hmm. and all those sort of things as well. I don't think it has that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure of course, and you speak about the relationship, you know, the, you know, with your mother leaving, mm-hmm. um, and you know, how that has affected you in your life. And of course these things always affect people, but you know, 50% of relationships or so are ending in, you know, divorce mm-hmm. or separation these days, kids, you know, are much more used to their parents having various different ways of living. And I yep. think that at least that aspect of it to kids of today, they don't suddenly feel like I'll be, I'm the, I'm the one kid. Yeah. yeah they don't No, 
it's more like I'm part of the gang now that yeah. my parents have split up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Now yeah. now I've got the two houses. Yeah. Now yeah. I've got somewhere I can get away with something that I can't get yeah. away with at the other house. Which really annoys him because he can't. Because his <laughs> mum and I talk a lot. He has said that to me. He said, this is not supposed to work like mm. this. If mum says no, you're meant to yeah. say yes. I'm like, no, buddy. No, no, no. That's and fine. so you and his mother do have a good relationship, at least uh, with, in regard to parenting him? Yeah, we do. We, we have a good relationship in... in just in life, we, we can be friendly. We can be, we can have a shared birthday party for him if, if necessary. I've, she's remarried. I've met her husband. He's, he seems like a decent fella. Um, and she, she actually said that to me. I don't want this to affect CJ. I, whatever has to happen between us will happen between us. But when it comes to him, she's, she's been very, um, strict with her side of the family that they are not to bad mouth me in front of him. Um, and I'm the same. I don't let my family badmouth her in, in, in front of him. Um, and when I ended up in jail, she was very supportive of us continuing to have a relationship. So I ended up in a prison in Beechworth, which is the better part of three hours from Melbourne. And they would come and visit every fortnight. She'd, she'd jump in the car at six o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning and drive up to Beechworth just so that I could spend my time with my son even though she was brokenhearted, even though I'd caused her a whole lot of pain, even though it meant that she sat as the third wheel in a, in a prison visitor centre for several hours so that I could have my time with my boy. I'll, I'll, I'll be grateful for that forever. There's, I don't see any reason to badmouth her. She didn't, she hasn't, effectively she hasn't done anything wrong. She didn't choose to steal. She didn't choose to, you know, yeah, she, she could have been more supportive when it all happened. She separated us and bang, that was it. She, she, I did this, <laughs> you know, I caused all this pain. Why would I be mad at her? Yeah. I was struck by the fact that she, even in that time had made that incredible effort because I could also see her going, well, no, you don't get to see That's your right. kid for yeah that period of time, yep. uh, you know, or I'm not going to, you know, if your dad wants to bloody drive him down, your dad can drive or whatever, yeah, you right. know, like the fact that she did it, I thought was said a lot about her, yeah. you know, as a, as a person in this story. So, Okay. You're in court on this, the day you're being sent, sentenced, mm -hmm. right? And then you immediately go from the sentencing to prison is how it works. Is it? So yeah. talk me through from when the judge tells you yep. uh, what the verdict is and what the sentence is going to be, or what, yep. I mean, what the sentence is going to be, I yep. suppose. Um, and then what happens? Yeah. So the judge said um, three years um, and with nine months to serve and the balance suspended. And was that about what your lawyer thought it would be or was that a surprise to you? Did you have an expectation going into that of what it, you thought it would be? My lawyer had said a year. Yeah. Um, he'd said he'll do everything to make it a suspended sentence. Um, and, and, and he said, I think the worst case scenario is a year. And that's because you're a clean skin. You haven't done anything mm. in, in before and you've admitted. So you've, you've saved everybody a lot of time and money trying to prove that you did it. Uh, and I was in with people who had done similar sort of crimes that had much longer sentences because they hadn't admitted to it. Um, and, and so the, uh, the, the courts take a dim view on that because they have to spend a lot of, a lot more effort trying to prove that you did do it before they can sentence you. So it was, it was probably in line with uh, my, the, 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 the bit the, the, the dis, disassociated bit of my brain did maths as soon as she said that it went $300,000 three years where you were working, you were earning about $110,000 a year. Guess what, dickhead? Mm. You could have just worked for those three years and you would have earned the same amount of money. But instead 
you've ripped the pin out of a hand grenade and blown your life up and you're going to jail. Good job. Well done. Um, so that was what, that was all going on in my head while the judge read her reasons. So they read through all the rationale for the making of that took about 40 minutes. I don't remember a single word she said. Um, and then she offered me an opportunity to say goodbye to my family, which they're not meant to do. You're not meant to be allowed out of the dock once you've been sentenced. And she allowed me to come out of the dock, hug my family, say goodbye to them before I went down. That's the old expression. You go down, you literally do go down. Um, and in that moment, um, my friend Dan, who had been my greatest ally through all of this, I hugged my sister and I, and I hugged the other people that are there and Dan puts his arms around me and he goes, is there anything on your computer I need to delete? <laughs> and what a beautiful bastard. Like in the, the, the thing that kept me, I think part of the stuff, thing that kept me sane from the day I went down to, you know, even to today was finding the humor in things and him just being able to put that in there and make me smile in the darkest of dark moments, it, it, it helped for the next hour. Cause I could think about him saying it and just have a little smile and, um, so you go down, you go through this door that's got three locks on it with a, with a guard. Um, you get put in an elevator, you go down into the basement of the county court. Um, and then you get walked to the cells with two guards, one on either side of you. Now I presume that they're there to make sure you don't do anything wrong. I, I suspect in my case, they were there to make sure I didn't faint. Um, they, they take any, um, clothing off you that could be used, um, for, um, you know, self-harming. So they took my belt. They all had a chuckle cause I had a Batman belt on. Um, and then they put you in a, a cell that's, that's perspex walls or, or four, four perspex walls, a bed and a steel toilet. And I didn't, a, a lady offered me a cup of tea and I had the cup of tea, which was really hot and really sweet, which I think was the intention. It puts a bit more, a bit of sugar back in your blood and warms you up a little bit. And then I was like, I don't know what to do. And so I lay down on the bunk and I went to sleep. And I was in there for about probably two hours and then someone came and nudged me and they moved me to the next cell. And I was in the cells under the court from 10 o'clock in the morning when I went down till about five o'clock, just, just before five o'clock at night. And um, there's an interesting observation you make in the book about uh, the fact that you slept. Yes. So what they say, um, and I found this out afterwards, is that's an observation cell. They put you in there to make sure you're not going to hurt yourself with the shock of going to prison. And they, they say that the, that's where the guards decide if you're innocent or guilty. So, and they say the innocent are the people that you've got to watch out for because they're the ones screaming for their family. They're the ones crying. They're the ones scratching at themselves. What happens with the guilty people is they sleep because at that point, the worst has happened and all the adrenaline goes out of your body and you sleep. So the guards would have looked at me and gone guilty, which I was. Mm. So that's fine. So that's the, that's part of what the observation cell is. It's not just about whether or not you hear yourself, it's the guards and the guards write a note. He slept for two hours and, and everyone else will read that note and go, okay, well, this guy knows he's guilty then. Yeah. It's funny. Um, I, when I got arrested, uh, after the flight, mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, I, I wasn't guilty, <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> but, uh, the notes, you know, they give you all the sort of mm -hmm. notes and some of it is around the observations. And one of the ones that I always remember is it says, uh, you know, whatever they were called me, you know, prisoner, yeah, seemed surprised that this was happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was surprised. I was very surprised yeah. Yeah. that it was happening, but it was clearly that they were making the observation that I wasn't. Yeah. You know, that yeah. it wasn't like, oh yes, I've you done like, something, got now us. I've got us. Yeah. Like I, I was really like, 
what the fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, okay, but you, even though the fact that you're sleeping, you must be scared, right? Terrified. Yeah. Yeah. And because now it's unknown. There's nothing on the website that says this is what's going to happen mm. your first night in. I'd talk to my mate about what I could expect. Because um, were you worried about like the worst, you know, the worst things you see in movies absolutely. and TV and those sort of things? Yeah, absolutely. And then you get taken to the Melbourne um, Assessment Prison, which is in Spencer Street mm. in the city, um, and you get processed and that takes an hour or so. And the first thing that happens to you is you end up naked in front of strangers a lot. You get you get stripped down, you get strip searched, you get so used to being strip searched so quickly that it becomes not a thing. I guess because I was never trying to smuggle anything. Um, so and I imagine it'd be a lot more stressful mm. if you were trying to get away with something. Um, but you get you get used to that really quickly. That happens three times in the first hour and a half that you have to get stripped down. So it's once for the doctor, um, once to get out of your clothes and into prison clothes, um, and then once for the guards before you go up to the jail. Uh, and you get asked a whole lot of questions. They're all the same questions from the same people. And it feels immediately like, um, they're just ticking it off. So do you know why you, do you know your name? Do you know why you're here? Um, do you have any thoughts of self-harm? Are you taking any medications that we need to know about? Um, and it really feels like they have to tick. They really want you to say no to the self-harm because there's a whole lot of paperwork. If you are thinking about that, they ask you about whether there's anybody in prison who might have um, ill will towards you. Cause I think they need to think, they ask mm. if you're affiliated with any gangs, there's a, there's a, there's a whole world of stuff that rotates around prisons that people wouldn't be aware of. Like, um, they, they don't admit it, but different jails are for different gangs. So to use bikers as an mm. easy example, cause they're familiar to a lot of people. They'll put all the hell's angels in one prison. Because they, then it's easier. Mm. They take care of each other. There's no gang. There's no bikers from other gangs in there to fight with. It makes the place a more casual place to be. When I was in um, the final jail at Beechworth where I ended up, they put all of the Muslims into the same unit. And that's so that they can open it up at four o'clock in the morning for them to pray. And it's easy. They don't have to go to all the, and they, they have um, different rules about food because they need to because religion. So there's all this admin and the first thing you bump up against when you're trying to go through all of that is the most dangerous thing that happens in prison, which is you get bored because you're just sitting in a really cold cell in inadequate clothes. Wait, cause, cause for a lot of it, I was just in the suit that I went there in and it was cold. It was the middle of winter. So, um, you, and you sit around and, and you get bored and, and that, that is something I came up against again and again in jail is that the most dangerous thing that can happen is in a prison is for inmates to get bored because then they do naughty stuff. Um, so you do all of that and then you go to your cell and the, the cells at MAP look like the cells you've seen in, you know, America's hardest prisons. It's, it's two levels of cells with gantries that are covered in steel with great big heavy doors that clang when they close them and, and all of that traditional prison, you know, it looks like a prison movie sort of thing. You get walked into a cell the guy that's in the cell has been locked in that cell since 4.30 in the afternoon. So you get in there about 6.30. He's settled in for his night and thinks he's lucky because he's got his cell to his own for the night. And then you get shoved in there with him. Um, and, and then the door clangs shut and then that's it. You're in this, you're in this world. So did you have going into it an approach about how you thought you were going to serve your time? Yes. 
Absolutely. And how far away from actually how you did serve your time was that idea? So far that I couldn't imagine. <laughs> it just, everything I thought was wrong. What do, what do you, can you remember some of the things you thought? Yeah, I'll use a nickname yeah. and not my real name yeah. because these people aren't going to be my friends. So I'd worked before I went in, in and um, there was there was two other guys with the same name as me at, at the place I worked and I was the oldest, so I just got called Senior. That was my nickname. So I'll, I'll use Senior. And and it, it, you don't get a whole lot of exciting nicknames growing up when your name's Will. You know, um, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> but you can use your name for your comedy shows for yeah. your whole life. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah, yeah very do, good for that. You, you can do that. Um, and and so I'd never had a really good nickname, so Senior mm. was going to do it. So that was how I was going to introduce myself. I wasn't going to make friends with these people because they weren't my friends. I was only there. I only had to serve nine months. I didn't have to make friends. I would, I would, I'd do this by myself. It would all be okay. Um, and, and I wouldn't talk about what I'd done because... You know, every, mm. every prison show you've ever watched. Don't says, ask people what they do. Yep. But they did. It's virtually the only thing you talk about mm. with most people. I can imagine. Because <laughs> it's the only thing you've got in common. Right. Right. So. What are you in for? Yeah. What are you in for? Yeah. I, I stole money. That, in fact, the, the day I was in, in the courts, there was two young fellas came in and, and one of them said that to me. And when I told him, he goes, who from? And I, I said, who it was from? And he goes, good on you, mate. Mm. Victimless bloody crime. <laughs> right? They were, they were impressed with me because yeah. I'd stolen money from an insurance company. And, and I'm trying to get through my head. Oh my God, I'm in jail. Mm. And these guys are like, good on you, mate. Oh no, this is a different world. Mm. So I didn't use the nickname because they call your name out across the loudspeaker. So there's no point trying to pretend mm. that you're somebody else. Um, we talked about what we did and I made friends. It, it, I, all of it just went out the window straight away because you need friends wherever you are. Um, when you're in pain, you need a band aid, and and your friends in prison are a band aid. They're not. I'm not friends with. I'm friends with one guy who I knew from jail now, um, and we're Facebook friends because he lives in another country now. But we would be friends if he was in Melbourne. But one guy. But but at the time, they're real friendships because you need them. So first night. Because this is what, you know, yeah, again, you know, movies and TV shows have taught yeah. us anything. It's the, but just using any sort of human empathy also would tell you that the first night's got to be the most terrifying mm-hmm. of all. Mm-hmm. So you go into a cell, there's a, there's another prisoner already in that cell. He's been in there. I imagine it's, I imagine it's not his first day also. He's been no. in there for a two bit. days. He'd been in oh, there. Two yeah. days. Yeah. Two whole days. Yeah. And so how does even that go? How does that how do you introduce yourself? How much do you talk to each other? You yeah. know, how much is he telling you about what he knows in that situation? So he introduced himself. We established fairly quickly with both white collar. Um, he was a little bit older than me. Um, he'd stolen a whole lot more money than me. Uh, he was a gambler. He had more time. We talked about that. That's the other thing you talk about. You talk about how much time you've got. Um, and he, he told me all the things that he'd learned from his two days in jail. Cause he was, you know, he was the expert. Um, so he told me things like, um, everybody hides food because at the Mac you get locked down at four 30 in the afternoon, which means you eat dinner at three forty-five. Um, so you're hungry by eight o'clock. So everybody takes a couple of extra rolls or a little serve of something. And w- what you do is you go to the canteen and you buy something in a Ziploc bag. So then you've got a Ziploc bag to hide your food in. Um, he told me we're not to hide things in the cell. Um, he told me that the rule was that we'd both would shower every day, but we'd do it at different times while the cell was open. So we had our own privacy. 
Um, he told me you don't take a dump when you're locked in the cell unless you can possibly avoid it. Um, you know, courtesy stuff. You're living in very close confines with another bloke. Um, he asked me if I was a smoker because even though smoking, smoking got banned after I left, but, um, you weren't allowed to smoke in your cell, but the reality is you do, you're locked in from 4.30 until 8.30, you're going to smoke. And he was relieved that I wasn't a smoker because he wasn't either. And then he said to me, let's just watch telly for a bit. So once everything went quiet and that wasn't, that didn't take long. That was probably a half hour chat. That was when things started to build up for me and I started to get really anxious and I was trying to look out the window and I couldn't really see out the window because the, there's, there's perspex, then bars, then two more layers of perspex and you can't really see. Um, and I started thinking, this is my life. Oh my God, what am I going to do? Um, and I started crying as quietly as I could because you don't cry in jail. Yeah. And, and he pretended not to hear me and I pretended I wasn't crying. And then at one point I had to go to the toilet and I got down off the top bunk and went to the toilet. And as I turned around to go back up to the top bunk, he just put his hand out from under his bunk and he had a packet of Tim Tams in his hand. He just held him out. Didn't say anything. He just offered me a Tim Tam. And I took one of his Tim Tams and I got back up on the bed and basically just cried until I was exhausted and I went to sleep. But it was, it was a real, um, moment of, I guess, realizing that everybody else in here was human too. And he knew what I was going through because he'd been in for two days and, and he knew that maybe what I needed then was just a guy that he'd just met offering me a Tim Tam. It was, it was beautiful. So what are your days like? Tell us what, uh, so you say that the, the cells get locked down at, what did you say? 4.30. 4.30, yeah. What time? So just run me through an average. Can you yeah. walk me through an average day? So the, the cells open at half past eight. You go straight down, have breakfast. Um, and then about half past 10, they do a call out um, wing by wing for medication. So if you take medication, you go up and you get your medication, you come back. Um, there's programs, so there's orientation programs when you first go in. So you go and you attend those, um, lunch is at like 11, dinner's at like 3.45 and, and in the, in the meantime, in the map anyway, you're waiting to be assessed and sent to the prison that you're going to end up at. So really your days are nothing other than that. If people want to come in, you can have two, um, visits personal visits a week where you can actually go out and go into the yard and be with the people that are visiting and you can have four um, box visits. So box visits are, are those quintessential glass in between. You know, there's a phone. You don't need the phone. It's just there, but you, you can hear each other perfectly well. Um, so so my friend Dan came in and visited me a couple of times because he worked in the city. So your day gets a little bit broken up by that. Um, or you can walk the yard. So the yard's just, it's about 200 steps and you can walk around that and around that and around that. Um, or you play chess or you just talk to people. Um, if you've got credit on your phone, you can make phone calls. Um, it, it really, those first few days are just surviving and getting used to the rhythm of life where you get every time before your cell gets opened, you get counted every time before the cell gets locked up, you get counted. You learn to do things like you get given an allocation of milk every day, um, 300 mils of milk. Um, and, um, yeah, it's in a fridge, but the fridge is outside your cell. So you, you learn that you've got to get your milk and put it inside your cell before you get locked down at 4.30 or else you drink your cup of tea without milk for that, for that duration, for that 16 hours that you're locked down. Um, you, you learn, it, it always reminded me and made me chuckle about the, um, ad 
from way back when Kieran Perkins was mm. pushing milk. Yeah, we his name, had his name milk. on his milk. Yeah. We all had to do that. So <laughs> <laughs> you get a texter yeah. and you put your name on your milk. I'm Kieran Perkins. I put my name on milk because I did nine months. Yeah, a lot of people right. don't know this about <laughs> yeah, me, but right. I picked it up in prison. I picked it up in jail. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so, so Beechworth is where you end up. Yep. Yes. And so, how, how much of it was at Beechworth? Most of it. And what what does your day look like at Beechworth once you're in a prison where this is where yeah. I'm this so is where I'm staying? Beechworth is a very pretty prison. It's a farm. It's on it's outside Beechworth. It's a hundred and seventy odd acre farm. So they have they have cattle, they have goats, they have um, a big welding shed. Beechworth's a working prison, so everybody who's under retirement age, unless you've got a medical reason, works. So at Beechworth, you're locked down for a lot less time. So you still get, the, the door gets opened about eight o'clock. They count you in your unit before they open the door. So everybody gets counted and then all the doors get opened. You go to your breakfast um, and then you go to morning count after breakfast and then you go to work. So everybody, pretty much everybody at Beechworth worked. Um, there's a lot of work that happens out in the community. So as I said before, I was in the kitchen for most of the time. They actually had a little notice up on their notice board saying they wanted people for the kitchen. So I went and, and did that. And it was terrific because the, the kitchen's seven days a week. So most people work Monday to Friday and then on the weekends they, they have the weekend to themselves. But what are you going to do with the weekend to yourself in, in prison? There's a two kilometre walking track through the farmland and stuff, which is nice. But how many times can you do that? And I'm not... a, a um, a bodybuilder. So I wasn't going to spend all my time in, in the gym. So working in the kitchen seven days a week was really good. So there's five counts a day at Beechworth. So you get counted in your cell, you get counted in the morning, you get counted at lunchtime, you get counted when everybody else comes back from work just before dinner and you get counted at lockup. So that, that's the thing that runs your day is, is what are you going to do between counts? Um, if you're out, Working in the community, you, you, it's luxurious because you miss one count or maybe two counts if you've got to work late. And that's like, that's like you know, getting away with something. You, you, you get off early from school sort of, th you know, that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, the, the working thing, it's there to stop the boredom, I think. And it's there to, to give you a little bit of a sense of purpose while you're there. Um, and, and it does that. Punishment versus rehabilitation. <laughs> yep. Um, you know, I mean, you were in jail long enough. Yes. To have a sense of, you know, how the system is set up. Is it yep. set up to be punitive? Is it set up to be rehabilitative? Is there elements of both? What could be done better? You know, like, I mean, I'm sure you have thoughts on all these things. I do. Um, I think that my recovery is entirely due to me and not at all due to the prison system. The only thing that jail taught me was as a white collar criminal, you don't have to be that scared of jail. That's the main thing that, that jail taught me. Um, cause you didn't feel like the day to day that you were in, you know, I mean like you in, know, danger. Or, in danger of being shivved in the showers, no. like, you know, that you couldn't walk the track because no. And there's violence, drugs and sex in every jail, but, um, basically at Beechworth, they're, they're only there if you look for them. So Beechworth is a unique prison in that they don't have a methadone program, which means nobody who's recovering from ice or heroin or all those things are, are at that jail. And it, that settles the whole place down. Um, the other thing is it's there for white collar idiots or people who have been in for a long time. So there was a, there was a guy in our lodge who 
had been, he had started his sentence at Pentridge. So he'd been in jail for a long time and he was in his last 12 months. So he did not want to do anything to mess that up. So there's a sense of calm across that jail. So it's quite a, a, I I guess it's, you know, they, they say it's the best prison in the system. Mm. And I can see why they say that because it's low security, low stress. Um, but that said, I would line up every morning to get my circle. I would estimate about 40% of the jail were lining up with me. And during my time there, there, there was not a therapist or psychologist on the staff for the whole time. So there was no one to deal with all of this obvious mental health issues that were going on in the prison. So there's no help or rehabilitation there. When I got there, I was still, one of the things I kept getting in trouble for was I'd completely forget where I was and that it wasn't about me. Um, so when I got there, they said, was there anything I needed? And I said, I could do with some counseling. And they said, well, there's DNA counseling. And I, and I was so self-absorbed that I was like, depression and anxiety. That's me. That's, I can do that. I'll take that counseling. DNA stands for drug and alcohol. It doesn't stand for depression and anxiety because drug and alcohol are things that they treat. Depression and anxiety are things that they do not. So I never got the chance to have any sort of support for that. Um, and they don't, there are no programs that say, right, so now you're going back into the world. You're going to have to manage your own money. You, it's going to be loud. Things have changed since there's this thing called Facebook. There's none of that at all. So when you come out and here's how people are going to treat you and here's right. what you now, like you are now a person who's been to jail and how do you deal with that when you apply for a job and how do you deal with that when you introduce yourself to people and yeah. how are you meant to, you know, build new relationships? You know, when do you tell somebody that you've been to jail? Like yeah. I meant all these things, like I imagine are thoughts that every single person who goes out of the system, you know, is yeah. having you know, you've got your, so you're going to jail, you know, sort That's of checklist. Right. So you're coming out. Yeah. And, and so of course you fall back in with the people that you were in with before. And if you were a criminal, you're going to fall back in with criminals and you're going to start living the life that you lived before. And if you're a drug addict, you're probably going to go back and live with the life you lived before with them. So of course you're going to go back but because the support network isn't good enough. We, we, um, I, I genuinely think we have a system of punishment, not a system of hope. Um, that's, that's what I really think it's about. Uh, if the, if you had a magic wand, mm -hmm. if there was one thing you could fix, like, you know, it's day one, we're, we're going to get to fix one thing on day one. Unfortunately, we can't fix that's it all, right. but it's day one. <laughs> we're going to fix one thing. Yep. What's the first thing that you would fix from your experience? Um, it would just be a practical program for people getting out that linked into a network of people once you were out. And maybe they're people like me, but, but a practical, a, a practical course. This is how to cook for one person. This is how to balance your budget. This is how to negotiate the world of mobile phones and social media and all those things that may have changed a lot since you're in. They changed a lot in nine months while I was in, um, this, and then here are five people that you can make contact with when you come home so that you can just ring them and go far out, I'm having a tough time today and they will answer the phone and they will talk to you. That's one of the things that's happened from me publishing the book is that I've had contact with a number of people. Um, it'll probably happen off the back of this as well, that every time I seem to go put myself out, so something comes back to me through one of our um, communication channels of somebody saying either my family are, um, you know, my, my family are going through this or I'm about to go through this or I've got to go to jail and I don't know what to do. And so, you know, 
that's one of the positives out of, I guess, all this experience. I can sit down with those people and go, yep, it's hard. I've got no answers. What was your worst moment out of the nine months? What was sort of rock bottom? What was when, you know, you really were at your worst, if you don't mind me asking? I don't mind you asking. Um, and it's going to sound really banal. It was the day my son got his puppy. So my son um, went to a psychologist a couple of times because he was struggling a bit with the fact that his dad was in jail. And the child psychologist he went to said to um, his mum, I don't want to know anything that's going on in your life. I just want him to tell me what's going on in his life. And then I'll talk to you after I've talked to him a couple of times. So she talked to him two times, then got his mum back and, and said, okay, tell me what's going on. And she laid it all out. And then the psychologist went, he hasn't told me any of that. All he's told me is both his dogs died and he's sad. That's all he's told me. Get him a dog. <laughs> so <laughs> for that birthday, we got him a dog. And I just had a moment of, that's what a dad's meant to be there. The joy, like I called him that night, like I did every night and he was so distracted and I could hear the puppy and I could hear how excited he was. And I just had this punch to the gut of you're meant to be there for that. You dickhead. Look, this is, this is what you get to miss out on now. This is, you know, it wasn't Christmas. It wasn't his birthday. It wasn't any of that. It was that day when I could hear his joy and I couldn't share his joy. This might seem like an equally, uh, you know, weird question, but what, what was your best day in prison? Like, what was your happiest moment? Yeah, I, I had a lot of happy moments. We had a lot of, we had a lot of laughs. Um, I, because the truth is that everybody in there is just a person. Mm. They're, they're just, they're just dudes like me. And, and I tend to get along with people easily. And, and, and in some ways, probably, you know, the, the thing that everybody knows is that you've all fucked up. Yeah, that's right. Like, you know, yeah. out in the rest of society, we spend so much time on Facebook and Instagram and whatever, you know, telling people about our wonderful lives. Yeah, well, it's hard we to are. fake your perfect, wonderful life when you're <laughs> right. all in prison together. There was, so. there was a night where there, there was eight of us in our lodge and six of us were in for embezzlement and we were playing Monopoly. <laughs> 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 There's definitely some comedy in this. Um, I, I think my, my, um, my best times were, um, in the wildlife center. So Beechworth's got a wildlife rescue center that works in the, it works in conjunction with Hillsville Sanctuary, but it works in the community, just rescuing wildlife in that area and taking care of them. Um, and I decided I would do some study around wildlife care and, and did some work in there. So my, my happiest moments were with this wedge-tailed eagle called Temujin. Uh, and she had been shot in her wing. She was quite old when I got there. She'd been shot in her wing. She couldn't fly. Um, and I did a lot of my study around her and her behaviours and, and how we took care of her in, in captivity. Um, and we, she was my friend. We, I started off just sitting outside her cage and reading books to her so she could get used to the sound of my voice. And then I ended up sitting in her cage reading books to her. And it, it was only about a week. And then about a week in, I was just sitting in the chair reading to her and she actually walked over and put her head down on my lap and just stayed there while I read to her. And then, and it went from there. I was, I could touch her. Then I could, so then I could check her wings for mites and I could check her feet. And, um, it got to the stage where I'd walk into the scent, the area and I'd yell out to her and she'd start hopping from leg to leg cause she was excited. And those were the most pure moments, I guess. They were moments where I could forget where I was. Um, we need to finish up. We've, we've run out of time basically. So, um, uh, it, look, the book is called Mr. Ordinary Goes to Jail. Yep. 
And I highly recommend that uh, people have a, a read of it because I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of what we talked about today in that, but there's a lot of other stuff in there as well that we haven't had mm-hmm. the time to get into and cover. And uh, I, I think that people would really get a lot of insight about how you can get to that point in your life, um, uh, you know, the consequences of those actions and then how you rebuild your life afterwards. But I want to just quickly touch on the rebuilding because the, when you leave prison, yep. how does your life restart? How do you... Did you have an attitude to like, this is the sort of person that I'm going to be when I, yeah, I did. get I, out? My attitude was, I have to be honest about it. I don't want to pretend that I never went to jail. Um, that stifled me a bit in, in terms of getting jobs because mm. I would be honest about telling people that I'd got, I'd been to prison and then they don't give you a chance. People just don't give you a chance. But, and why would they? Like if, if they've only known me for a, a 50 minute job interview and then they say, is there anything else we need to tell you about? Or they say, we're going to do a police check. And I say, you're going to find something. Mm. Why would they give me a chance? Yeah. Cause they don't know. Particularly when it's like, uh, you know, I stole from the company that I worked, worked for. for By the way, could you please give me a job? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And so my dad just said to me, you, you have to have the attitude of don't ask, don't tell, mm. because you have to prove who you are, not what you did for at least a couple of weeks. And then, um, I did that in the next interview that I had, which, um, was with a, a big funeral company. Um, I didn't tell them they hired me. And after a month I sat down and told them and, and again, had that moment of um, kindness and grace where I had no right to deserve it. The, the, the manager of the business at the time sat me down and said, all right, I've been brought up to speed with what you've done. That was in your past, right? And I said, yep. And he said, we're going to leave it in your past. He said, mate, we all fuck up. He said, you've done a pretty good job. Yours is pretty impressive. Don't do it here and you'll be fine. Now get back to work. And it was just, I was astonished at the, that just him giving me that chance because a lot of people didn't and a lot of people wouldn't, um, because I imagine it's hard to get past that bias. So, so the job worked and I still work there. Um, I am responsible for multiple sites for them now. I sign checks for them now. They've totally put their money where their mouth is and gone. It was a mistake in your past. If you're going to leave it there, we're going to leave it there. So, you know, it's, it's really a, it, it can be okay. Like one mistake doesn't have to ruin your life. You have to face up to it and you have to take your consequences, but it doesn't have to ruin your life and it doesn't have to define your life. And finding love again, how, cause that to me, like, you know, yeah. that, that, that in itself is going to be one of those things that, yeah, you know, you have to bring to the table. Well, I've been married before. Yes. I, I have to bring to the table. I already have a child. Yes. Uh, you have to bring to the ta- table. Oh, uh, also I went to prison. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, and, um, neither of us were expecting love to come. Um, we, I, I told, um, I told her on my, on our first date that I'd been to prison and she says to me now, I didn't care cause I had no intention of seeing you again. I didn't want a relationship. I was happy to be your friend. I had no intention of seeing you again. The only reason I saw you again was cause you had a car. <laughs> so, so like, and it wasn't a company car. And it we wasn't know that. a company car, correct? Yeah. So it it um, so we we actually got past that really fast. Um, the the having a kid and, and that stuff that a lot of people have to go through. We went through all of that. But uh, the the cool thing about our relationship was neither of us were looking f- for the, for the love of our lives. Both of us were looking for the opposite of what we got. And, and it, so, so she says, um, she prayed for, um, when she prayed, if she ever prayed for a man, she didn't want an Australian accent. Um, she wanted them to be Catholic and she didn't want them to have any tattoos. 
So I'm not Catholic. I've got a terrible Australian accent and I've got a lot of tattoos. And so I say to her, isn't it good that God heard what you wanted and gave you what you needed? Um, <laughs> but I was the same. I, I didn't want, um, I, I didn't think I needed a, a, a strong willed, incredibly intelligent, um, forthright woman in my life. And it's exactly what I needed. She's also incredibly immature like me. And we have, a, we, we laugh a lot more than we cry and, and we poke fun at each other and she pokes fun at me about this past part of my life a lot. And I entirely, I love it. I, yeah, we, we just, so, and I think because neither of us are expecting it, it, it had time to, to grow. Uh, this is not the first time that you told me some of this story. Yeah, no. So, uh, before we finish, yeah. I, I wouldn't mind talking Going about that. that. Sure. So do you want to tell me what your memory of yeah, absolutely. that is? So that was back in 2013. Um, you and Dave Anthony did an episode of Fofop, which was called something like an unexpectedly serious conversation. And as I remember it, there was a, a, a person who had worked at the ABC, um, who had got themselves in some trouble with the police around, um, the content on his computer being inappropriate content. Yep. And you and Dave ended up in this really serious conversation about how do you show that person you support them when you hate what they did with every fiber of, of you. Um, and I was listening to that in my car and I had to pull over cause it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I burst into tears. It was, I was a mess. I was like, this is what, this is what so many people in my life are going through right now. This is the bit that I haven't heard. Um, and I remember sending you a message and saying that like just in broad brushstrokes, this is my story. And the podcast that you just did really touched me. Um, and then I, I think we went backwards and forwards a couple of times, but, and your, your closing thought to me was make sure you touch base with me when you're out of prison. Cause I want to make sure you're okay. Um, and, and that was that, you know, that really, that stayed with me. That was very touching. That was another one of those things of. Know, this, this, this guy is a, a well-known media personality. He, there's no need for him to say that. He, it, it, it seems to me from listening to all his stuff that he's genuine, that he wouldn't say it if he didn't mean it. But why, why do I deserve that sort of kindness? I, that, that's just, I'm a random bloke to him. I'd, so that was another, wasn't for me, it was another one of those instances of being offered kindness when, um, I had no right to expect it. And, and then when I came home, I did shoot you a message. And, and then when, um, I went on, uh, Michelle Laurie's podcast, Australian true crime, and the book came off the back of that because the publisher heard the interview and I was excited when, when the book was going to happen. And I, I think I sent you a message through one of the podcast pages and said, Oh, there's the book. And, and your response was love to talk about it, love to read it. And so here we are. That's what I remember. We've read it twice now. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> cause uh, we've been trying to schedule this in for a fair while. And, uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, I, um, I was actually really glad that I reread it. I was, I was, uh, I was tossing up whether I would just go with what I remembered or whether I would actually dip back in and, mm -hmm. and have a reread. And I'm glad that I did because I think I got yeah more out of it the second time when I had some time to sit with the ideas and sort of put myself into that situation. And, and, you know, I think that the more that we can tell the stories of the mistakes that we've made. Uh, and the more that we can accept that sometimes we need to be punished for the mistakes that we've made yeah. and you know, it, how we accept that punishment and how we 
recover from that defines us as much as the mistakes that we've made. I think it's a really important and powerful story. So I appreciate that you've come and chatted to me about it. I need, I want to ask you the standard questions I ask everybody else on the podcast though, if we can do that, what do you reckon happens when we die? Um, I think that we die and the only part of us that lives on is the memories that other people have of us. I think that, um, the, the Disney film Coco describes it really well in that, you know, once you fade from the memory of the people that you love, then, then that's it. You're just not part of the world anymore. But I, I don't, th- I don't believe in an afterlife or anything like that. What's your greatest strength? Um, being able to meet people without judgment. And what's your greatest weakness? Not always being able to meet people without judgment. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty honest response, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'll be interested to see what you say to this one. I have a time machine. Right. And uh, I can take you back to any point in your life. Yep. And you can have a do-over if you want, or you can observe that moment, um, or you can decide not to take the time machine and you can just uh, go on with your life how it is right now. Yep. What are you going to do? Um, I'm going to go back to 2011, to a night when I didn't go to dinner at my oldest friend's house because I had uh, a massive anxiety attack that day. And I couldn't cope with being with other people. And I didn't tell him any of that. He wanted me to go to his house that day because he wanted to tell me that he was moving his family to the United States, which is where they still live. And he wanted us to have a a special night together. And I rang him and I couldn't be honest because I was ashamed of my anxiety. And I said to him, I can't come to dinner to your house tonight because I have to go to Kmart. And, And in one of those quiet moments when... Um, you know, when you lie awake at night and you remember all that awful things that you've said to people or things that you wish you could do differently, that is the moment that I wish I could either say to him, I I can't because of my anxiety, or I would just, you know, fake it till I make it and went to his house. But to ring my oldest friend and say, going to Kmart's more important than you, that's the moment I'd go back and change. Well, it's been a pleasure, mate. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I I really appreciate it. And this has been... um Absolutely fascinating. Again, I'll do a, a proper plug for the book at the top, but uh, yep. a good man goes to jail. Is, uh, sorry, an ordinary man goes to jail is what it's called. Yep. Um, and uh, is there anything else that you would like to give a plug to here at the end? Um, well, we're going to be launching an audio book version, which, okay. I've, which right. I've read. So that'll come out in um, January. So you could be listening to this in 2025 and it's been out for years, or you could be listening to it when it's just about to come out. So the audio book will be on Audible in January. Um, so you know, check that out. I've, I've always been a fan of audiobooks that the author reads. So I was determined to do that. So yeah, that's the other plug I'd want to give. Thanks heaps for giving me your time. Will I really appreciate it. Cheers.